Welcome to another episode of Strategy and Sourdough. This week, Thomas and I have Pankaj in our virtual studio. Hi, Pankaj. Hey, guys. How are you doing? Very good. How are you? Very good. Very nice to uh, have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm equally excited as well. Awesome. Um, Pankaj and I worked together at American Express many years ago, where he was in a business development role. After leaving American Express, he went to HelloPay as head of partnerships. And after HelloPay, he joined Expedia. And now he's responsible for account management for a very broad region, from what I can tell, including Europe, Middle East, and India. It's pretty much half of the world. Is that right? Absolutely. Barring, I think, ex-Europe, you could say, uh, this is a new geo that we developed. Why do we let a crisis go to waste? So I took on the new challenge of managing India, Africa, Middle East, and Turkey. Obviously, we know that Africa, Middle East is a growing region for pretty much all the startup world as well. So that's what I'm looking after and really focusing my energies right now, sitting from the beautiful Singapore. Pankaj, from the time that we worked together, I remember that you being really good at partnerships. And on this episode, we really want to focus on specifically B2B partnerships for startups. I want to start straight off the bat with the question of what does it mean to have a win-win partnership? We always hear that. We always have a perception of what win-win means, but I think it would be great to hear from your perspective as someone who's practiced uh, partnerships and business development for many years, like what does win-win mean on the broadest sense? True. I think uh, when you look at a win-win scenario and you talk about partnerships, it's actually not very easy to attain that situation. One of the key factors when we look at partnership is all about give and take of trust. You only get into a partnership when there is a level of trust. And once you have that level of trust, you will be able to kind of garner and build upon it for years to come. I mean, look at our scenario, Noor. I think the last project that we worked was back in 2011 or 2012. And after that, you know, we went our own ways when you got in touch with me. But when you started to talk about this whole project and the conversation, I think we immediately stuck a chord. Mm-hmm. We started from where we left. Exactly. So there was a level of trust, which we talk about. And when you have trust, you have relationships. One of the key factors that we always work upon is building relationships, retaining relationships, and making sure that we foster this relationship by investing in each other's efforts. So these two form a formidable part of any sort of partnerships. And we're not talking about partnerships now, which have a financial construct to it. This could even have just as a pure friendship, a genuine friendship. So there's nothing fundamentally scientific about it. It's just very basic, and we just need to follow those two ethics. We often speak about partnerships for startups being, you know, there's no right or wrong as to who you might want to partner with because it's when you're in a startup and when you're growing, when you're unsure of what your final company business model or final direction might look like, almost any partnership discussions might be very fruitful um, in the beginning. If we put ourselves in the shoes of a startup founder, Pankaj, where would you start finding these relationships? What types of partnerships might be beneficial for companies that are in the relatively early stages? What's your view on that? Well, I think I would address the question, but if you step back, I think fundamentally you have to have two level of mindsets. And this is a great understanding for every entrepreneur or a startup entrepreneur. My wife has just started a new business in the pandemic as well. Uh, and a constantly debate with her is that are you 
building a business to solve a problem or are you building a solution to solve a problem you know and they have two different meanings to it a lot of startup entrepreneurs come and they or constantly talk on stage you'll hear that this is a problem we identified and this is a solution that we are actually building but actually are you building a solution to address a problem I think those two fundamental aspects have to go hand in hand and once you address that part of the construct of what you're focusing on then from there onwards you can devise a strategy I'll give you another example when I started with Hello Pay back in 2015 I was actually given the responsibility of building a partnership for Hello Pay with some strategic partners these were your big names like obviously i'm not in the freedom of actually talking about these names but you could imagine these are all established players in a small country like singapore or in indonesia or in philippines and we were actually going door to door into different industries whether it's a telecom sector whether it's a payment platform car delivery food delivery service taking these solutions across to them but at the end of the day we always were consistently dabbling with a challenge that were they our closest what their friends are for were they able to really relate to our product that our product transition that technology into a a solution that could really resolve a problem or were they just absorbing our technology and understanding the product and then looking at what is the problem that we are trying to solve and rebuilding it on their end so that level of strategy was quite prominent and i would always urge the entrepreneurs to actually go back fundamentally on what is it that you're building and then from there onwards you could actually strategize whether you want to go with a strategic mindset having a few strategic partners to scale up your business or you can even go around and say okay i'm going to have multiple small medium enterprises as my customers build a base build a foundation and then from there i have a proof of concept and then i address the strategic segment This is a very interesting topic it reminds me of a podcast I listened to with uh, Professor Scott Galloway of NYU oh, yes. Stern. Yes, I, I follow him as well. Yeah, and he was talking about and he gave this example of partnering with Amazon is a bit like a virus partnering with its host. Like they are going yes. to suck you dry and there's nothing you can do about it. So, in that sense Like you mentioned it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem. On one hand you want the benefit of or the expertise or the reach of a much bigger player in the market that could t- potentially take your business to the next level, but on the other hand you are so small compared to their power that you essentially have to give up a lot and where they are taking all the benefits without necessarily giving much in return. So how do you find that balance of what kind of companies to partner with and how to structure the partnership in a way that doesn't destroy you in the end well i think it actually comes in uh, it's a great question and there is no easy way out to it <clears throat> unfortunately you have to learn the hard way of course i think having had the experience of not only building partnerships but also within the selling scale of being in business development account management for over 21 years i guess you kind of gauge very early in the conversation that how it's going to lead up to or where, which direction are you going and unfortunately what happens is because at the time of a startup you are so gullible and you vulnerable and you want to really desperately get them on board that you're willing to actually go down the route of building a solution which you're not meant to mm-hmm. but you want to prove a point 
that you're building, a, you start going into a direction of building a technology, building a solution, just to make sure that you get that partner. Mm-hmm. So I guess the question is, how can you actually avoid digressing from a strategy where you know that, okay, fine, if I address this market segment, address this strategic partner, it's good for us. It's a win-win situation. It's good for the partner as well. Well, instead of actually going deep into a solution building mindset where suddenly you realize that, oh, I'm doing something absolutely different. And that's what happened with me as well at some point in Mm -hmm. time. And that's why we were quick enough. I think when I say quick enough, honestly, it took me six to seven months to realize that this is not the direction we should be going in. And we kind of pivoted away. We we said, okay, forget this strategic mindset because it's a lot of heavy lifting, Mm -hmm. a lot of heavy lifting. We don't have the time. And so what we did was that my boss actually at that point in time, we agreed that let me work on the small, medium enterprise businesses. And where did we start? We started from Philippines because it was all about dollars and cents and dimes. And and we built up a good merchant base of 300 merchants in a span of three months or four months. We hired the right people, talent uh, that we required in Philippines who were working with banks and they could equally transition these merchants across to a small company like HelloPay at that point in time. And I guess when you're in a startup world, like what Thomas said was absolutely bang on. You're nimble, you're agile, and you have to have that adaptive mindset where you are quick to change your route the moment you realize this is not the route that you intended to follow. This is not your destiny. Also, the other thing that's really important, I think, to keep in mind that as a startup, as an early stage company, you're always going to have finite resources. So your funding is, is finite, your time is finite, and your resources are finite. Based on what you were saying there, would you say that it's really important actually to stay true to your business and try and figure out who are the one or two strategic partners that are going to give you the requisite scale to get to the next level and then focus on making those partnerships really win-win rather than going after the big names and the most obvious ones or too many partners and then digressing your own business to try and appease these partners that may on the surface sound right, but actually in the end might not be the ones that you're going to end up growing with. Well, I think it's a mix of both. There is no straightforward answer to it, Thomas, unfortunately. When we looked at it, I think because we were a startup, because we were an unknown brand, right? So we had to prove our concept. We just went around doing a normal sales. I would call strategic companies, big companies, speak with them, meet them for coffees, meet them for lunch, trying to grow them to the idea of e-wallets. How do we transition from real money to e-money to real money? And trying to see that fundamental new way of doing business. And so you can't really go with the mindset of saying, okay, I'm going to just work with, say, in telecom, a Singtel or a Starhub, right? You have to kind of uh, spread yourself thin across different industries. And if it clicks, one or two partnerships clicks, uh, great. But if it doesn't, you have to be really up ahead of the curve to realize that it's not going to work out. And then you've got to pivot away in your strategy. What that strategy is, it's very different. I'm not in a position to probably share that uh, knowing the industry type. But as entrepreneurs, you have the decision to make whether to continue walking down a route or, or a road, which is going to be a long, long road ahead. And because you are a startup, you have a cash crunch, you know what your runway looks like, or do you want to really pivot away and look at building scale and then readdressing the same strategic set of customers later in the years? Because imagine they're going to be very much ahead in the game and they would probably appreciate your product more because you already have a proof of concept. 
So there are two different ways in which we can pivot away into these this strategic story. But at the end of the day, as a startup, I don't blame startups as well who want to have these big dwells, recognized companies on their portfolio. Because the moment they do that, remember, it eases their raising capital raising ability, valuation growth. So it's all linked. What your primary objective is, there is an easy way and there's a difficult way. Really depends on which one you want to take. And it's always good to jump also between the easy and the difficult one. This is a nice segue into one of the burning questions I had for you today. What does it look like on the other side? Because companies like American Express or even I would imagine Expedia to be somewhat similar are really big companies. And suddenly you have this guy or girl sitting across you and pitching a startup idea and say, hey, I want to partner with you guys. This is what we can do for you. This is the amazing technology that we can bring to the table. And you are probably thinking what you're going to have for lunch later. So (laughs) what does it look like from the other side of the table? And what are the criteria that you use in order to evaluate whether a startup is worth partnering with or not? That's a good question again. <laughs> I've sat through those lunches or pre-lunches sort of discussions over a cup of coffee uh, in Starbucks and trying to understand what these entrepreneurs are trying to do. And travel, I think pre-pandemic, uh, we all know that there are a lot of these travel companies which are mushrooming up, not only in Singapore, but around the globe. But one of the key factors that I actually try and figure out when I'm having those conversations is that what is the DNA of that business? Is it a technology company which is saying that, okay, we have a platform, we're building a platform for the hospitality business. We are building a platform for a wallet business. We are building a platform for foreign exchange business. So first of all, I really try and suss out with the help of the, after speaking with the entrepreneurs, what is your DNA? What are you trying to build? And part of that philosophy goes back to the mindset, as I said. Mm-hmm. I think it's not easy for me to realize immediately in a, in a half an hour call or an hour call, what is their DNA? And also during that course of discussion, I think I kind of persuade them to even rethink of what they are trying to do in that conversation, mm-hmm. to be fairly honest. But once we really start peeling that onion and trying to get to the bud of it, I think there are a couple of factors that we from where when we have actually decided, okay, okay, you're a technology company, then we obviously go down into different ways that how nimble are you? How What's your technology stack? Is it plug and play? Is it a developed technology? Is it really going out and addressing the market gaps? And if you are addressing those market gaps, what's your cash flow? What is your funding strategy? How would you, because in Expedia, for example, I work with the B2B affiliate business now. And in order for them, uh, any travel startup to actually come and resell our products, you need to have a good cashing, a working capital and cash mechanism in the back end to fund those transactions. Similarly, when you look at e-commerce company, right? When you have building a marketplace, you have small merchants who come and advertise their products in the marketplace. We as Lazada at one point in time and quote and unquote, there are different credit systems that everyone has, credit dates. We all know that in certain cases in marketplaces, when you buy a product on this e-commerce channel, the platform holds the funds for 14 days, just in case there's a refund, there is a damaged product. So imagine a small medium enterprise actually needs to have a working capital that can help them from 15 to 90 day credit terms. And that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So when you 
actually look at the end-to-end process in identifying what I am looking for within a travel segment or what I'm looking for in the e-commerce or payment segment, I think you have to start from the beginning of the DNA, go through what is the chain of products that they built, what is the problems that they're trying to resolve for, and eventually what is their end goal. That is key. You know, some entrepreneurs I've spoken with who are very focused on making sure that they build a product and they have an exit strategy as well. You know, it's very difficult and they're very focused in making sure that, okay, after say a year or two years, I don't mind exiting and probably let this show go on with the help of the venture capital companies. There are a lot of them mm-hmm. and some of them won't hold it back as well. So, so it's, it's a mixed bag. Unfortunately, I don't have a crystal ball and I could say, okay, this is a strategy that works for you. Have you had partnership negotiations or even, even agreed partnerships that just simply did not work? Are there any kind of general sort of guidance that you might be able to provide of, of some of the pitfalls that you have come across throughout your, you know, over 20 years in the partnerships and, and account management business? What could we share with some of the listeners today on what has happened in the past that didn't perhaps go as well as you had hoped? I think, Thomas, it really boils down to your positiveness and your tenacity, just how tenacious you are to actually go along and make sure that this deal is going to work for you or the partnership is going to work for you. My recommendation to young entrepreneurs is that when you walk into a meeting, do not anticipate the best outcome. I always go with the worst outcome. And when I walk out of those meetings, whatever comes my way, it seems to be better than what I've already thought about. So that is the key to happiness being low expectations. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You you lose a lot of weight with that. But (laughs) but actually, actually, in this case, I totally believe in this mantra and I actually follow that. What's the worst that's going to go wrong? And whatever outcome that comes out with is the best. But remember, whatever the outcome is, there is always it's never going to be a crystal clear win. There's always going to be a development aspect to it. There's always going to be a commercial aspect to it. There's always going to be a delivery aspect to it, an after-sales service aspect to it. So when you are actually constructing your sales pitch, when you're reaching out to these partners and or trying to create these partnerships, my recommendation to entrepreneurs would be that you have to actually have a 360 view of what can be done. Because look, when you're presenting, there could be any questions anytime. And there's always the other thing is that if you don't have an answer to it, it's okay to walk away with it. Because there's sometimes people appreciate the fact that you're walking away because you don't find the fit to it, right? Sometimes when you ask, uh, go to uh, raise capital, majority of the time people say, no, this is not a fix for me and I'm not willing to put the dollars in it. So they are very happy go lucky and they have full respect in, in the business that you're running. So with a similar aspect, I would say that when you actually realize, even during those presentations, that this is not, there's a compatibility issue, be fearless, walk away. There's no harm in doing so, because I guess what you walk away is with respect and your head up high that tomorrow, if there is an opportunity, you could still work together. And people really appreciate that fact. And this goes back to relationships. And trust you know, that you, you mentioned at the beginning. Trust, yeah. absolutely, Anu. So all of those factors do comprise in making of a perfect pitch, a sales pitch. But if it doesn't work, that's not the end of the world. That's all I want to say to the startup, because I remember when I used to come out uh, of some of those key meetings and I was hitting my head that, A, it took me a long time to get that appointment, but B, it was not a favorable outcome. Yeah. So it's easier to 
give up at that point in time, but it's always that tenacity of a business development person because then you're wearing a business development hat at that point mm-hmm. in time. Once you conclude the partnership, then you are wearing a partnership hat. Yeah. And then from there onwards, it's all about delivery. Yeah, with partnerships, of course, as you mentioned earlier, you're going to be knocking on a lot of doors. You're going to be securing a lot of these meetings. And I think it's probably fair to say, based on your evaluation there, that you also need to just be completely ready to walk away if it's not a win-win. I think that goes back into that finite resources. So if you as a startup have finite resources, the, the, per, the company that you're approaching for partnerships, they're also going to have finite resources in what partners they might go after. And if yeah. there isn't a chemistry, if there isn't a win-win, walk away and do go for the next one until you find the one that will likely work. Yeah, and look, there's a lot of opportunities out there. There's a lot of companies out there. And for me, I always kind of tell our partners or our aspiring customers, entrepreneurs, that there is a competitive landscape, not only on the product that you're selling, but on the other side as well. So try and hit them on every end so that if you're not able to get one player in telecom industry, maybe you end up getting the other. So that's always a philosophy that I work on that try and get complementary subsets as well from a strategy perspective. So if you're pitching for Singtel over here, make sure that you pitch for Globe in Philippines as well. Mm-hmm. Who knows what clicks. I wanted to ask you about the role of partnerships within a broader growth strategy. I know it's very difficult to give an actual percentage, but at what point do you think partnerships become risky so much so that if most of your revenue is coming from one big partner, then you are taking on probably more risk than you should be. And related to that question is, I would assume that most bigger companies would require some sort of exclusivity when it comes to partnerships, which is another form of risk from the perspective of the startup. What's your point of view on how startups should handle partnerships risk, both from percentage of revenue and from exclusivity point of view? Well, I think uh, exclusivity has to be both ways. And in order for one startup, because look, there's a lot to lose for the startup. It's not too much to lose on the other end. So when you are driving this home across with strategic partnerships, make sure that exclusivity runs both ends. So if there is a loss, there's a loss on both ends. And if you're building something, make sure it's a scalable model that you're building so that if you even go around losing the side of the, uh, of the customer, you're able to scale it up and probably adapt to a different customer on the other end of the spectrum. So while I would say that exclusivity is a great way of enhancing your valuation, I also feel that as a startup organization, you need to kind of dabble with all segments across Mm-hmm. And it's good to have a few exclusivities, but I think majority of the of the concept would always work when you spread across different industries, different customer segments. And it's, it also really helps you fall back uh, on your core strengths. Because if there is any changes that are required, either from a strategic perspective or from your core perspective with your other segment, you're able to kind of equate the changes in a way that can be monetarily construed not only for big customers, but for smaller customers as well. It's like, I would say, finding your wheel, your customer wheel. So I'll give you an example. We all know about Paytm, right? Uh, Which is one of the e-wallets back in India. And to get their wheel, finding their their wheel, they, they actually pivoted towards the strategy of getting one big customer 
and making sure that it works. So in India, all the processing of payments for car rental was for Uber was done by Paytm. Mm-hmm. And that became their flying wheel. Mm-hmm. And if you see strategically, Uber has not exited India as well. But Uber has exited pretty much from China to Southeast Asia. But the payment company that is working with them is purely exclusive and it's still retained for Uber in India. So you've got to find your flying wheel at some point in time. And once you find that, it has to be mutually exclusive, but you can't ignore the rest of the world. Paytm still services out to the balance of the population, to balance on e-payments, e-wallets, microtransfers, and all of that. But maybe majority of 20% or 15% of their revenue might be coming from Uber. I'm not sure, but you know that's part of their flying wheel now. It almost sounds like trying to find that big impactful partnership that's really going to take your business to the next level while simultaneously trying to diversify and expand your basis at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and it's not easy to find that balance, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's always very difficult. I, I don't know how much time uh, or effort that would have gone both ways from Paytm and Uber to probably have that click, have that relationship. And it's a strategic relationship uh, mm-hmm. for both partners. But at the end of the day, when you look at globally for Uber, it's Adyen on the payment side, which is processing the rest of the world transactions. So fundamentally, if you're able to get that strategic partnership, I think you make up for your flying wheel. You probably have 15 to 20% of your revenues driven out of it. But beyond that, anything 25%, 30% is a huge risk because what if you lose this partner? So you have to continue to build and scale your products so that you're actually servicing all segments of the industry. Very fascinating discussion. Let me try to summarize some of the points that we have spoken about today. I think the first part of uh, building relationships that are in the partnership space is you have to try and find these win-win scenarios that are based on trust. That's the key starting point. Um, And that's what uh, startup founders and startup marketers should actually be uh, striving for. And when you're partnering with these bigger players and these bigger companies, just evaluate enough early on whether this might be right for you or not. And be quick to change the route or pivot when you realize the partnership might not be in your best interest. And there are multiple strategies, no perfect formula, of course, but you know, consider starting small. So you, you mentioned your Philippines example of starting from a, a very finite place. So you have a geographic starting point, you have a certain size of companies and partners that you want to go after. Or alternatively, because you're working with unknown companies, you have to be meeting enough of these strategic partners to first see the idea of your company and your solution, spread yourself thin at first, and then focus on the ones where there might be that win-win potential. And when you're really thinking about that, it's important to keep in mind what these partners that you are after as a startup might be thinking about. So what they are thinking about is what is the DNA of this business I'm meeting and what are the fundamentals of that business? And that's really important for you to keep in mind so that you can be have the right solution in the room when you are meeting these partners. And At the end of the day, when you approach a potential partner, just ensure you do your homework. What stage of your own fundamentals need to be in place for you to be able to partner with them to begin with? And a couple of the key things that you mentioned, positiveness and tenacity are really important. Anticipating the worst outcome, which may sound a little counterintuitive, but I guess guess that's a really good uh, feedback because when you go into that room, you have to have thought about things like after sales and delivery and fulfillment and the full 360 view of what can be done. And... Be ready to walk away if you have to. Keep finding the right opportunity. And when you find the right opportunity, make sure that opportunity 
has the exclusivity on both ends and the strategic importance for both companies for that partnership to have a long-term success built from right, right from the beginning. Is there anything that you'd like to add to that summary? No, um, absolutely. Crystal clear. I think thank you so much, Thomas, for summarizing the conversation. I think it's great. The only thing I will actually just share with young entrepreneurs is believe in yourself, believe in what you're doing, and there's no easy road to success. But once you do make it, remember your learnings and be able to kind of foster younger entrepreneurs to come up and live up to that journey. Thank you. Yeah, and here's to hoping all of the listeners out there find their flywheel partners and yes. grow their businesses disproportionately. <laughs> That's important. Thank you very much, Pankaj. This was a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much, Pankaj. Thank you very much, guys. Uh, really appreciate it and wish you all the very best as well. Likewise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Strategy and Sourdough. Please drop us an email at hello at strategyandsourdough.com with any questions, suggestions, or feedback on this episode. 